Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to this. Uh, okay. Uh, welcome, welcome to the Building Science to the Building Science Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Greetings, Building Science enthusiasts, and welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. Mark your calendars now, and don't miss the 2019 ATX Building Performance Conference on May 17th in Austin, Texas. The Humid Climate Conference and friends will be putting on a day-long meeting of the minds to discuss everything from air barriers to the best brisket in Texas, with speakers like Dr. Joe Stebrick of the Building Science Corporation and Dwayne Dahlman, FAIA of the City of Seattle. This will be a heavy-hitting day, and the event will also feature an assembly mock-up rodeo. So get yourself over to humidclimateconference.org now to register. Yeehaw! The Sand and Sanco 2 Gen 3 system is a split-type heat pump water heater system that improves upon the existing high levels of performance and efficiency of the Gen 2 Sanco 2 system. The Gen 3 outdoor heat pump unit uses an R744 CO2 refrigerant to water heat exchanger, but can now produce hot water between 130 degrees and 176 degrees Fahrenheit via the unit control panel. This hot water can then be stored in one of three capacities, 43, 83, and 119 gallons separate storage tanks. The hot water is then delivered via an included mixing valve to supply domestic hot water to the building. The Gen 3 system has a coefficient of performance of 5.2 and can produce 160 degree Fahrenheit hot water in ambient temperatures down below negative 20 degrees Fahrenheit. The heat pump can now be installed at a distance of up to 50 feet from the storage tank, including 16 feet of vertical separation between them. That's a big deal. Installation is simple, with no refrigerant piping and all water piping connections being a threaded type. This unit has an extremely low noise level of 37 dBA, and a video detailing the installation process is available. The systems are listed with Energy Star and is NEEA Tier 3 approved. It's hot water, naturally. To learn more about sand and water heaters, please visit www.sandandwaterheater.com. Now enjoy the rest of the episode. Hey everyone, your producer Miguel here. Just a quick word of warning that the audio quality from this episode is not the best, but the conversation is fantastic, and that's why we kept it. We ran into some technical difficulties recording the remote interview, which if you've ever tried this, you would know it's always a challenge. Anyway, we hope that you enjoy the conversation and that you learn something new about refrigerants. Okay, hello. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I'm here, as always, with my sidekick, Miguel. Hey, everyone. And I've also got John Miles on the phone. We've spoken to him before. Say hello, John. Hey, how are we doing? I'm good. How is everyone today? I hope we're all well. Thank you guys for joining us. So today we're going to be talking about refrigerants, and we're going to be getting into a topic that we call end-game refrigerants. Uh, And I thought we'd start out by just uh, reminding you guys listening that refrigerants are all around you all the time, and not only in your refrigerator, but mainly in the air conditioning systems in your house and car, uh, and in heat pumps that you're using. Where else are refrigerants, John, that we might not realize they are? Well, I mean, you know, anytime you've got something that's cold, you're essentially enjoying refrigerant from that, right? So, you know, you can go from the, you know, super systems that you have at the the mega store and, and, you know, where you get your frozen food from or your refrigerated dairy products, you know, all the way down to the the little wheelie bins that have the cans of Red Bull in or, or whatever, you know, and you pick really? it up and it's cold. Yeah, huh. th- those have a little compressor and a refrigerant in, you know, they use refrigerant. It's, it's all the basic same vapor compression cycle, but refrigerants, you can name a million and one uses and I probably still miss a few, but, you know, hospitals use it, you know, considerably, you know, not just in air conditioning, but, you know, refrigerating blood and organs. And, you know, you can, you can whip a heart across, uh, 
continents, you know, in a refrigerated bag nowadays and keeping it moving. But it's it's kept at a temperature, you know, and that all uses refrigerant. Fascinating. It's interesting how uh, how invisible it can go the more more common it is. And I think one of the reasons that this is this is a timely conversation is because of the the recent UN climate change report and the the recognition that refrigerants are, are really damaging to the environment. It's crazy how many pounds or tons of refrigerant are actually out there, right? So, yeah. you know, it, it's it's something that I think, and I forget the uh, the notable author put that refrigerants are probably the number one climate change driver. That he yeah, that was yeah. Paul Hawkins with Drawdown. I was going to mention that book. You know, I also want to remind us that just big picture, right? It, it, there's almost this like misperception that that people that are concerned about the environment, you know, and, and whether it's global warming or ozone depletion, that they're somehow saying, you know, what we really need to do is go back to this golden age before electricity, and we all need to live in farms. And that is so not the reality. The reality is electricity. And, and refrigerant systems generally have raised our quality of life, and they're not the issue. The issue with electric generation is unwanted carbon in the atmosphere, and the issue with refrigerants is unwanted depletion of the ozone layer. And there's some other issues we'll talk about. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the, the rise of air conditioning and, and you go back to Willis Carrier 100-plus years ago inventing air conditioning and being the godfather of it all, but realistically, you know, I'm sitting talking to you today from Los Angeles. We wouldn't be able to live here, right? Phoenix would be virtually, you know, it still would, it would go back to to a desert town, right? We'd all right. be clustered around, you know, areas and nodes where we could, you know, survive because, you know, you're not going to sit in 115 degree temperature, 120 degree temperature, you know, you yeah. Again, air conditioning in hospitals and, you know, everything that you take sort of for granted in terms of a 21st century life, you know, a lot of that creates heat and that heat has to disappear. You know, you, you, <laughs> could, you could argue that, you know, you guys are all listening to this on the podcast, right? Well, that podcast is being hosted by a server somewhere that's being cooled by a refrigerant, yeah. <laughs> you know, and without the server banks and data centers that have sprung up to maintain our internet, none of this actually exists. And we'd be, you know, sending a carrier pigeon out with, you know, very little information attached to its leg, but uh, it'd be enough to uh, maybe get one sentence out of the podcast for you. <laughs> All right. That's a good point. Okay, good. So that's the introduction, you guys. Refrigerants, electric energy, they are not the enemy. They just need to be done in a skillful manner. So a little bit more about refrigerant. We talk about this vapor compression cycle all the time. And at the heart of it, you know, vapor compression. So the refrigerants are going back and forth between the liquid phase and the vapor phase. And the vapor compression, um, excuse me, it's a really bad metaphor, but it's not completely inaccurate. It's like you are compressing the vapor to make a higher heat and have it be able to be shed more easily. Um, and I think of it actually like compressing a sponge, right? You saturate a sponge, and if you squeeze it, if the water were heat, you'd be squeezing the heat out. Tell me how wrong that is. <laughs> I mean, that's actually pretty good. Um, the analogy I always try and use is that heat always flows from hot to cold, right? So the hotter you can make something and then put it into contact with something that's cold, you get a lot of heat transfer, right? So what we try to do is you raise the refrigerant temperature up above the ambient um, in the condenser to reject the heat away from the ambient, right, uh, into mm -hmm. the ambient where you don't need it. You know, it, essentially that works backwards in the heat pump. And then what you work on is you work on the process of pressure and temperature are intrinsically linked. I think mm -hmm. it's Boyle's law. Uh, my, yeah. my days of being a scholar are, are very old, but you know, P1 over T1 equals P2 over T2. So if you reduce pressure, you'd reduce temperature, and that's kind of one of the hearts of a refrigeration cycle or, or air conditioning or heat pump cycle, is that change in pressure equals a change in temperature. And, and by manipulating that in various degrees, we get hot and cold. Um, scenario. So your sponge works, you know, because we do try and soak up energy 
from an electrical circuit. It's not self-perpetuating. It does use the energy from the uh, the power grid uh, in some way and then to compress it and then hopefully you take the advantage of the um, given by the temperature outside, right? And that's the whole point of a heat pump is taking heat from one place and pushing it somewhere else. Well said, yeah. And so specifically on air conditioning, you know, people think of it as almost magic that you can make heat. Well, actually, people don't usually think of it at all. But if they did, they would be like, how am I getting heat out of my house when my house is at 75 degrees? And how am I getting that to flow to the 110 degrees outside? And it's because the refrigerant... First of all, it was lower than 75 at one, when it was inside your house, so the heat flowed into it. And then when it was outside your house, it was much higher than 110, so it could flow out into the 110. I guess that's kind of the heart of the vapor compression. Yeah, perfect. I mean, that's exactly what we do, and then we just manipulate that cycle um, depending on what temperature you want and, and, uh, and how the actual refrigerant behaves. But essentially, it's just pushing heat from one place to another. This is a big subject, you know, trying to think about how to approach refrigerants. Um, and since you mentioned Willis Carrier, why don't we start with, do you know the refrigerant he used that was used originally? Well, I, I mean, the the early refrigerants were all, um, you know, they weren't really a synthetic-style refrigerant. They were ammonia, sulfur dioxide, carbon dioxide, you know, in some ways. You know, because if you really want to go back to the originals, you know, the vapor compression cycle, the first refrigeration plant is almost 200 years old. It's, it was developed in 1834. So, wow. you know, this is not, you know, as much as it seems like it's new technology sometimes, and, yeah, things do change just like anything else, you know. You know, cars are 115 years old or 120 years old or whatever they are. They change every every year, you know, in terms of technology. But uh, refrigeration does the same thing. So, yeah, the original refrigerants were all pretty nasty. You know, <laughs> sulfur dioxide is not something you'd really want to run around with or ammonia. But uh, essentially, it was until the 30s that we got what we start to recognize as a real refrigerant you know, a synthetic refrigerant. Why was synthetic better? Simply, well, obviously it wasn't poisonous, right, which is helpful. <laughs> um, the idea of the synthetic thing, it's about energy input, right? You know, the old units, you know, just as, as everything in the past is not as efficient as we have it today. The 1930s air conditioner was plonked in front of us. We'd probably, you know, put in as much energy as we would take out in terms of, of a system, right? So putting in the 1930s, the chlorofluorocarbons, the CFC refrigerants, you know, R12, R502, enabled everything to get a lot more efficient, work over a wider range of operation, and really sort of allow that to, to sort of promote air conditioning or refrigeration systems across, you know, much of the world. There's a word I'm trying to remember where the, the pressure range for a refrigerant is, is stable over a wide pressure range, and it's it's like a blended refrigerant, but there's a fancy name. Do you happen to remember it? No, azeotropic. <laughs> there it is, azeotropic, yes. So that, that's a, that's another reason why these synthetic refrigerants are, are superior. They have superior, Basically, you just say they have superior pressure temperature properties. Yeah, I mean, you know, and that's why they were developed. I mean, you know, there are some side effects from them, but, uh, you know, you certainly, and then, you know, they, they've moved on from there and evolved over a period of time. And if you look at the actual numbers of refrigerants, there's probably, I don't want to say a thousand, but somebody from DuPont will probably write in and say, no, there's 970. <laughs> but there are, there are refrigerants that you look at and, you know, certainly from a manufacturer's point of view, you know, we don't we don't use them because we don't work in that particular area where they specifically work well, right? So some refrigerants work better for refrigeration and freezing. Some refrigerants work better for air conditioning. Some work better for um, heat pump water heaters. It, it varies all over the place. 
you know, so you tend to end up with a lot of different sort of synthetic refrigerants, and it may only have a very small window of opportunity, but it was developed specifically to solve a problem that occurred in in terms of a, a performance or a, an efficiency number. Right. That, that's a really good point. And it, it just strikes me while you're talking that when we talk about inventing or discovering or using refrigerants, it's this interesting thing. It's not like you find this liquid or this gas and you say, huh, I wonder what it is. Oh, look, it's a refrigerant. No, it's in fact, you know, it's a substance that transitions at suitable temperatures and pressures between a vapor and a liquid. Yeah, I mean, we could use water as a refrigerant, right? Right. Water boil. You know, you you boil a saucepan and you get steam. You put a a cold mirror in front of it and the steam condenses back to the liquid and you can literally do that. You know, there are certain people that have water refrigerant chillers. Kawasaki sells one in in Japan, for argument's sake, which is, you know, you you can use air as a refrigerant. I mean, have you ever tried sort of, you know, when you're using an aerosol, right, you notice that as you spray it out, your aerosol can get cold, and that's literally the change in pressure is creating that temperature difference, right? So air, you compress it, it's hot. It has energy. You then, you know, you can expand it, and it gets cold. The energy you need to do that (laughs) then makes a mockery of all the efficiency standards, right? So the trick is to try and find the blend where you don't put so much energy into making the phase change, making it go from gas to liquid or liquid to gas or compressing it, adding energy to it. And then, you know, otherwise you could we could all literally sit there and go, okay, you know what, we'll just use air as our refrigerant or water as our refrigerant. But the amount of energy you'd need and then conversely the amount of fuel you know, power plants, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a sort of interesting scenario, right? Yeah, exactly. That's where I was going to go. In the distant future where all energy is renewable, Oh, we could use, you know, inefficient refrigerant processes without a big penalty. That's not today. So let's, let's jump to today. Let's, let's not go through the, too much of the evolution of refrigerants leading through the common ones we use today. Um, and I guess let's, let's go to three areas, and maybe we can try to stick to these three if, if you think it's a good idea. I'm thinking um, home comfort systems and automobile comfort systems and then um, refrigeration equipment. So in homes, what's the dominant refrigerant that you, that's currently used? So, so the dominant refrigerant is R410, 410A, right? Um, you know, it, com- it comes as different names and stuff like that, which are brand names and stuff like that. But the basic genesis is the refrigerant number is refrigerant 410A, right? It's a it's a blend of two refrigerants, so it's not a, an actual substance on its own. It actually uses a couple of different refrigerants to, to make it up. Um, but this has been since about 2006 when we switched away from R22, which is Freon, right, you know, as we call it, because Freon depletes the ozone. 410A is a hydrofluorocarbon. It does not have any ozone depletion on it. So that's the dominant refrigerant. If you go outside and look at your air conditioner, you know, unless it's a pretty old one, it's going to say R410A on it. And that's that refrigerant's very good at what I call comfort cooling, right? Keeping mm-hmm. us as humans, you know, and machines um, to 70, 75, 72, whatever your, your specific brand of that is. And then on the heat pump side, maybe 105, 110 degrees, you know, delivered air temperature. It's really, really good at that. And then conversely, if you're not doing comfort cooling, or I guess let's stick with comfort cooling. In cars, it's also comfort cooling. And is that still R134A? No, that's that's yeah. I mean, 134A is is coming under increasing pressure globally. So a lot of it and is switching Freon. to well, yeah. Freon again is is a term that it just gets thrown around, right? 134A is Freon is actually a trademark of of a, a very large chemical company. So oh, you know, it gets used. In, it sort of became the. Uh, the trademark for refrigerant. So Freon is actually, you know, it, it could be called Freon, but realistically, I just always call them 134A, right? So okay. it's it's a refrigerant. Typically, this is a much lower um, 
pressure and temperature refrigerant. Um, you know, it's been used in cars. Realistically, you know, it's probably been the dominant refrigerant, but it's slowly getting phased out. So you're seeing some change in the in the car industry right now, um, and a lot of them are moving to a, ref- a refrigerant. Interestingly, called enough one two R one two three four Y F. Yeah, it rolls off the tongue, but this is a hydrofluoroolefin. If you want to be precise about it, or as we call them, HFOs. Yeah, no, try saying that after three beers. Hydrofluoroolefin. I can't even do it before one. (laughs) (laughs) So we have HFCs, uh, HFOs, HCFCs. So what you're also seeing in in some car manufacturers and and Sandon, you know, is is leading the way on that, is the use uh, um, of CO2. Right, so we've now got some vehicles in the uh, European market um, that are using carbon dioxide as their refrigerant. Um, and as as car air conditioning evolves from the typical belt-driven compressor to more of an electric-style compressor, you're going to see some opportunity for CO2 to become a, a refrigerant there. But, but you know, again, that's a, another seven hours of podcast time. <laughs> And I do want to touch touch in more on that. That's one of the end game refrigerants. And the way I want to go there is I want to go through 410A, 134A, and then what was it, 1234YF. Can we talk about those from the perspective of the two kind of from a, a broad perspective, two parameters of refrigerants, not within the vapor compression cycle, but separate from that, there's the global warming potential and the ozone depletion potential. So let's take ODP first, right, because this is the easy one for us to do. Since, And certainly in the U.S., um, you know, since 06, um, because of the, the Montreal Protocol, um, which was um, signed in 1996, um, mm-hmm. the developed world, for, for want of a better term, phased out ozone-depleting refrigerants, okay, which were your HCFCs, right? So R22, perfectly fine refrigerant, you know, bouncing along, but it has this little thing where it it depleted the ozone layer. So we issued R22 and we switched to 410A for our air conditioning, 134A, you know, which again is an HFC, hydrofluorocarbon. Um, No ozone depletion, again, 1234YF, no ozone depletion. So pretty much any refrigerant that you talk to, talk about in the developed world right now is going to have no ozone depletion, right? Which has been a great thing, right? We've stopped that that particular scenario. But what we unfortunately did is we exchanged that for global warming potential, right? So all of these refrigerants have a global warming potential, right? And, you know, that's uh, typically we talk about global warming potential in 100-year numbers, right? So it's the amount of damage over a 100-year cycle that that refrigerant does, and it's equated back to pounds of carbon dioxide, right? So the the number expressed is actually the term of releasing one pound of 410A does the damage of around about 2,086 pounds worth of carbon dioxide over a 100-year period, if you understand my drift on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to say it one more time. So the, the GWP, the global warming potential, is a number that corresponds to the number of times worse than one pound of CO2 emitted over 100 years. Yeah, so CO2 has become the the de facto standard for global warming, right? So it's it's the, the measurement that we all definite, define it as, right? So you release a pound of carbon dioxide, whether you do that from burning fossil fuels or et cetera, um, you know, any other um, process that emits CO2, that causes one pound of damage to in terms of global warming potential. And it's just because we do huge amounts of CO2, it becomes that 
sort of scenario there. But if you look at sort of one, you know, again, one a pound of uh, 410A is going to give you um, a scenario where it's around about 2,086 pounds worth of CO2 over a 100-year period. You know, that's, you know, again, if you go back to that, it's sort of about the half-life or the damage that it sustains over that period of time. So uh, it's, it's a little bit... Uh, worse for the environment in terms of that. 134A is a touch better at £1,430 um, or GWP number of 1430 So, so uh, you know, and some of these uh, other, num- other refrigerants can get a little bit more, you know, in orders of two or three, you know. And then you can also look at the number as a 20-year number um, in terms of its GWP. And, and uh, it's not actually... You don't take that 1430 and just multiply it by five. So for uh, 134A, because it's the one that we talk about most of the time, it's right. 3,790 over a 20-year period. So if you look at it, you know, does that amount of damage for the first 20 years and then tapers on down after that to an average weighted 1430. I've heard about these GWPs, and they come out of the IPCC report. There was a second AR and the third AR. These are like they do different assessments over time. Tell me about that. It's it's not an exact science, right? So it, it's kind of it kind of becomes a little bit difficult sometimes to define. The numbers sort of float if you you know if you look around. So there is some there is still some work being done on on this effect. You know, to you know, just to essentially global warming. But essentially, that we have these. Uh, these existing refrigerants, which are much better as far as ODP, and there's still a lot of room for improvement as far as GWP. What are the? Let, let's go toward like the main topic here: these end game refrigerants. What would you classify as an end game refrigerant? Whether well, I mean, are there dozens? There's not thousands, right? I mean, as we progress, you know, we are getting refrigerants with better um, GWP, right? So one of the great things about 1234YF is its GWP is 4. So it's actually a really good refrigerant in terms of that. Unfortunately, it has some slight scenarios in that it is actually flammable, right? So that's the other, the other thought, thought that <laughs> you, you throw in. There's another dimension, right? So it's not always about that. And then typically what you also have is you have the, the third level, which is naturals, right? Your natural refrigerants. A natural is essentially something that does exist in nature, right? So ammonia is a natural substance, right? Carbon dioxide is a natural substance. Butane, propane, you know, hydrocarbons, all can be used as refrigerants, you know, and all because they exist in in the nature scenario have very, very good global warming potential. For example, ammonia or R717 has no global warming potential whatsoever. Zero. Zip, nada, right? You know, propane R290 has a global warming of three. CO2, R744 has a global warming of one. So, so all of these become somewhat interesting in terms of an end game refrigerant. Now, what you're also seeing is you're seeing other refrigerants pop in, and I think R32 is probably the the one that we really sort of talk about in terms of replacement for 410A. R32, it's a blend, has a uh, GWP of 675. So, you know, you might say, oh, 675, you know, we just talked about four and three and stuff like that. But, you know... Yeah, one and zero, but compare it to 410A, where it's 2,000 and odd, right? You're, you're actually a third, you know, 70, 70% better than that. So there is some hope in terms of the blend. Unfortunately, of course, you know, the drawback is that R32 is slightly flammable, right? And again, <laughs> all ends up in, uh, you know, not everything is a perfect silver bullet, as I try and point out to everyone here. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, and we can talk about like using CO2, for example, is it's challenging to make that refrigerant process work for for comfort systems. Well, yeah, so CO2, and, and we do see CO2 being driven into the refrigeration system. CO2 is a refrigerant, the pe- peculiar 
properties of CO2 is that it works really, really well at keeping stuff very, very cold, right? So uh, your, your bag of peas or, you know, your, your bottle of milk, it, it's really good at doing that. You're seeing a lot of supermarkets out there switching their big plants to a CO2-based system, right? And, and that's, that's great, and kudos to all of those guys for doing that. On my side of things, you know, CO2 is also a great water heater refrigerant. Um, The Japanese have been using it for almost 20 years as a water heater refrigerant, and it's really, really good at providing you with 150, 160 degree hot water, very energy efficient at that scenario, and, and stuff like that. So it works really well for heating water. It works really well for doing very cold things below below or at 32, 33 degrees Fahrenheit. But you tell it to go and try and do comfort cooling, we're talking about probably 75% less efficient than what you have now as 410A systems, right? So mm-hmm. that means they're going to use pr- approximately three times as much power as, you know, a 410A system. Now, if you've got power, you know, from the solar, you know, you're making electrons from solar or hydro, you know, maybe that power usage is not so much of a, an issue. But right right here, right now, until a lot more technology goes into, into working on that, and, and people are working on it, CO2 doesn't strike us as if I was sitting down and designing a brand new air conditioner for, you know, the year 2030, I wouldn't be picking CO2 as my first refrigerant, right? Right. You mentioned uh, one of the products, I think it was propane, was extremely flammable, and you said R32 was slightly flammable. Uh, is is there a more crunchy definition of flammable or slightly flammable or... <laughs> Um, well, <laughs> refrigerant gets designated, right, as a A1, A2, A2L, or A3, right, in terms of, of its refrigerant world. A3 is highly flammable, right? That's your propanes, your butanes, you know, things that you'd normally associate with, with putting on your barbecue and heating up your hamburger, right? Mm-hmm. Um you know, that obviously is pretty flammable when it comes down to a refrigerant, right? A1 is not flammable at all. Um, you know, CO2 is, is in that particular scenario, um, you know. And then A2 has two definitions, A2L, which is the lower of the two. which And it's all to do with how fast the flame spreads and lower explosive levels. And there's a lot of data behind all of that. Yeah. What you see is you see, you know, people put charge limits on on refrigerators or systems using propane, for argument's sake, right? So right now, propane and butane have a charge limit of 150 grams, right? You know, so it's it's not very much at all. But it's slowly starting to weed its way in, and that's kind of why I brought up the little Red Bull cooler that rolls around. You know, Red Bull does do a lot of natural refrigerants, and a lot of it is actually propane refrigerant in there. So, you know, but because 150 grams is, you know, and again, you've got to be metrically challenged, right? But it's about, it's only, um, it's, you know, two or three ounces. You're not really going to set the store on fire if it it leaks. You know, it's not going to burn quickly. It's more like a mild pop occasionally if it did burn at all, but it's not at a level which would cause an explosion. So the big talk about this right now is raising this limit up to 500 grams. And that, you know, the more refrigerant you have, the bigger systems you can design and and move it on from there. So it's going to move to be able to maybe used in mini splits. For example, I think the Chinese guys are going to do or try and put in about a quarter of a million propane mini splits into the Chinese market this year, wow. right? So, you know, your typical mini split that you see outside, you know, 12,000 BTUs, 9,000 BTUs, inverted drive, 
they are going to use those using propane, which is actually a pretty good refrigerant for it, and try and push that in there. And obviously, you know, then you've got to flare the connections and do do all sorts of different things, you know, but uh, there is going to be that propane whipping around the system. Yeah, it it reminds me actually thinking about safety and refrigerants. ASHRAE has a couple of standards, standard 15, which has been around forever, and then standard 34, even on R410A systems with, with some of these VRF mechanical systems, you can have large refrigerant volumes. And if they were to ever leak into the space, they could actually displace the oxygen. Like flammability isn't the only limit. There's this thing you can displace oxygen if you have enough refrigerant leaking into a conditioned space. Oh, yeah, 410A for, in that scenario, because it's heavier than air, it sinks to the bottom of the room, right? If you have a small room and all of the refrigerant charge drops into that one room, it displaces all the oxygen, right, without you noticing it because it doesn't smell, you can't feel it, you can't touch it, right? And then all of a sudden you can't breathe. You know, essentially that That's was part of the issue with ASHRAE 15 and, and certainly, you know, in a previous life as a VRF manufacturer, you know, it was uh, tantamount to figuring out how to deal with that for small you know, especially hotels and things like that, you know, there was uh, a lot of work done by the manufacturers to, to right. solve that so issue. You have a small room with an adjacent refrigerant line that was actually a, connected to a very high volume of refrigerant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could essentially drop the entire charge of the, of the entire system into, a, into one space if, mm-hmm. if everything, all the stars and the suns lined up in, uh, <laughs> in the right alignment. You are clearly immersed in this field. You're clearly following this, at least as an interested, very interested professional bystander. Where do you see it going? Where do you, do you have a crystal ball you can imagine where things are going to go? Well, I think um, there's some definite opportunities for the naturals. Um, you know, if I if I was sitting here and saying, okay, hand on heart, refrigeration systems. Whether it's an ammonia system for very large units, you know, cold storage warehouses, things like that, CO2s, the natural refrigerants, those two natural refrigerants have a huge advantage um, in that space, right? And and that's what should be done, right? So, you know, and this goes down to any level of of refrigeration, whether it's dip into the convenience store for a bottle of Coke or um, whatever that walk-in freezer or cooler that you've got there, it's time that we stop looking at just the capital cost of it and saying, okay, we're just going to chuck whatever refrigerant in we can do. We we need to move all of that to a a natural CO2 um, or, you know, ammonia in in certain circumstances. Um, Water heating, you know, and again, the drive to from to water heating is you know heat pump water heaters have an efficiency above one, which is the only water heater to do that. Saves us from burning sticks or fossil fuels um, mm-hmm. to make our hot water. CO two is is inherently the best refrigerant out there right now um, for that. You know, the Japanese have proved that for twenty years. Um, you know. Again, it's it's a capital cost thing in a little way. You know, new technology always costs more than old technology, right? So, mm-hmm. but you know, I, I'm seeing a will and a and a push for that in into that scenario. The middle ground, that's where the crystal ball gets a little cloudy, right? Mm-hmm. So probably from a manufacturer's point of view. So this is your air conditioning, right? This is your your, your air conditioning at home and in the office keeping machinery cool, et cetera, et cetera. So probably an interim solution is going to be R32A, R32 rather, just because a lot of the bigger manufacturers, Daikin, for example, are heavily invested in that particular refrigerant. And, and you, you can buy R32 mini splits right now um, over the counter in, in Australia and another Locales. Then we may look at a hydrofluorolefin. There are others other than one, two, three, four YF. There's YE. There's there's a couple more that I'm sure the wizards at the the big chemical companies who make refrigerants are, are cocking are cooking up right now. Um, you know that as it takes over the automotive side of things. Again, it does have some drawbacks. We see CO2 again, capital cost being what it is. You know, maybe it works in your in your in your luxury sedan, but not 
perhaps in the uh, in the, the baseline um, coupe or whatever it is. But again, you know, automotive is changing so much because of the push towards electric cars anyway. So that's right. probably going to drive a lot of different different issues in the automotive. Uh, air conditioning sphere in there. So, you know, when it comes to stationary cooling, if I if I put my hand on my heart, I'm rooting for 290, but it's not going to happen just because of the um, the inherent dangers of it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, until we can work out something. So, so I think maybe that one's you know, as I say, there's a good middle ground to step to. It, it may not be the perfect solution, but 32 is probably going to be an interim solution. Right. And then, you know, as work continues on, you know, making propane safer, you know, increasing the efficiency of CO2, those have the opportunities. But the, I think the end game with refrigerants is going to be a drive to naturals. Right, yeah. you know, go nat, go nat refs, go natural refrigerants, right? Because they do the least amount of damage, and if we can figure out some of the operating and and cost penalties that we need to do to do the right thing, then then they make inherent sense to do that. However, as I say, there's probably some guy in a in a lab somewhere locked up in <laughs> wherever that's. You know, on the verge of creating his own perfect refrigerant that hopefully does everything. It's super efficient, has no ozone depletion, you know, has zero global warming or very little global warming. It's not flammable. (laughs) You know, it's not carcinogenic. It's, (laughs) you know, I mean, well, I got two wrinkles for you. One is, you know, for space cooling, it seems to me that one of the issues is is the moderate temperatures that's needed indoors that our bodies are comfortable in. Well, for heating, you know, both heating and cooling, if we use hydronic-based systems, we could store the hydronic fluid at a much lower temperature and mix it up to space temperature comfort ranges. Yeah, so so that's one of the, the scenarios that you can look at is that, so do we suddenly abandon our mini-splits and our central air systems and go to a you know a hydronic chiller outside, right? Because chillers exist, right? Big mm-hmm, buildings absolutely. have chillers, and single right? and, exist, mm-hmm. and, and and small chillers exist, and certainly you know a lot of other marketplaces. This monoblock water heater, which exists outside of the of the the ambient or outside of the envelope yeah. per se, right? So it can have a, a, a flammable refrigerant in it if it wants because you don't put the refrigerant into the building and we just pipe water around. So that, mm-hmm. so the rise of hydronic, you, you're seeing it in Europe, um, huge numbers of these monoblock-style systems going in. And you can do cooling, you can do heating, you know, so you can do a lot of different things. And, and with the rise of heat pump performance, the adage is that, you know, you don't have to worry now. You know, we can provide hot water in, in, the, in the frozen tundra of Minnesota, you know, and very efficiently. you don't have to, you can do it efficiently and we can get the water temperatures that we need out of that air. So, so those, those have some opportunity and, and there's, a, there's a big opportunity for that. And I'm a big proponent of that product. It's, it's definitely something that um, yeah. I think that the U.S. is uh, well overdue for. I think so, too. I mean, as far as elegant thermodynamics, I mean, there's an air-to-water heat pump, you know, right behind me here on this wall, and it's a fantastic system for both heating and cooling. I'm curious, what did you, could you tell our listeners what you meant by um, monoblock systems? Monoblock is something that we, we use, in ter- in ter- and it basically it means that the system creates hot water or cold water, and then that that water is then pumped into the building, right? The other style units, the long departed and, and, and missed Daikinal Therma unit, right? Right. That had the ability to have you punched in refrigerant lines, and then there was a refrigerant to water heat exchanger module that you put onto it, and then you had air conditioning, which was fed by refrigerant 410A. That's right. the other style of system, but that really doesn't solve our issue in terms of 
you know, flammable refrigerants, low global warming mm-hmm. potential refrigerants and stuff like that. So so the monoblock is sort of, I guess you could call it a heat pump boiler if you wanted to, right? Or, you know, yeah, I mean, a heat pump water heater is, oh, well, we've used that term before. Um, so it can um, be used for space cooling or heating and making hot water, and the refrigerant is always contained within one package. Yeah, out, that lives outside mm-hmm. and, you know, just hums away doing what it does. Yeah, yeah. So my air to water heat pump has two of those characteristics. It's the refrigerant never leaves that box, just the water, but it doesn't make hot water directly. I mean, it does make hot water directly, but not when I have it in cooling mode. So. Yeah, so there are some challenges and there are some things that we're all working on and, and stuff like that. So so there are some abilities to do that. Um, there's a company called Mayakawa that has a very large CO2 based system that works very well for hotels and and it makes hot water and it makes cold water and things like that so it's a you know that's but it's on a large scale system because it always wants to have a building where it has some cooling load the technology exists it's just a case of you know like i say you know there are i think seven million or six and a half million and i still look at the latest shipments of air conditioners and heat pumps into the u.s this year right so that's a huge flywheel of (laughs) of product to to slowly change out right you know you can't just you can't literally just uh, lower the boom on them and say okay as of 29 first first of january 2019 we're not doing that anymore lads (laughs) right so let's stop As much as we'd like to change out some of these old inefficient industries, and there are better ways of making hot water than uh, than burning sticks, as they say. Yeah. But things do change, and you know, I think a lot of what you just forecast is, is probably going to come. The other wrinkle that I was thinking of, and and I don't really know much about this, but there are solid state cooling systems out there, like the Peltier effect, and. Who knows what wizards are working on those these days? Because I know for electric vehicles, particularly, one of the big challenges is, you know, air conditioning in that electric vehicle. It's a big energy suck. Yeah. I mean, you know, so, so I mean, the, the other thing that you can throw out there is some of this phase change material, mm. right? Right. You yeah. know, that there, there's a lot of work being put into those. I would not characterize myself as anything but a, an interested bystander on those right. things. But yeah, I mean, also electric vehicles, right? You know, I think you'd all be shocked to find out how many BTUs actually go into cooling your car. It, it's it, The number is actually mind-boggling when we think about a home, right? And you've got, oh, I've got a 48,000, I've got a four-ton air conditioner on it. Well, you know, you're driving around in this box and it's probably got something that's a little bit bigger than a four-ton air conditioner compressor strapped to it. There's a lot of heat load, there's a lot of glass it's out in the sun all day there's a lot of metal there's not much insulation in terms of you know anything like that so uh, there's a significant cooling and heating load required from your automotive uh, box that you've got to uh, be able to account for so uh, in an electric car if you want to sit there and run your tesla with the air conditioning on all day your battery life just disappears to to whatever right yeah one of the fundamental differences is your house doesn't need to overcome you know fluid Resistant. So your car, since it has to go fast and move a lot of air out of the way and you have friction, the air conditioning load, if you have an internal combustion engine, is actually relatively small compared to the other loads of the car. You know, gravity <laughs> going up and downhill and accelerating. And yeah, that's a whole, whole new science, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Wow. I think that was a feast of ideas. Is there anything else you wanted to cover that we haven't touched on? No, I think we kind of we kind of you know, rolled through pretty much 200 years of stuff <laughs> in about 50 minutes. So yeah. that's pretty good, right? Um, it's really you know, good. Yeah. As I say, you know, if you if you want to drill down and we can talk about naturals in in some you know much more depth as to how those work and the vapor compression we can do that but you know there's a lot of different nuances and you know i encourage everybody you know if you're really interested in refrigerants there's a lot of great things out on the web now um, that you can google and, and go through and, and and look at refrigerant operation and stuff like that so so yeah it's been great i think this is a good place to stop otherwise it's going to be a six-hour episode as you say So thank you so much, John. Appreciate your intelligence and your clarity. And thank you all for listening. No problem. Thanks a lot, everybody. Bye.